Well, very good morning to everybody. Uh, it's so good to see everyone out, and we uh, we do have visitors with us, and we just want you to know that uh, you are our honored guest, and uh, it's it's something to be said when you invite somebody uh, that that's not a normal member, because um, there's always that will they actually come, even if they say they come, and, and one of those came today, and I just want them to know how much that means to me, uh, but it also means a lot to everybody here. So thank you for coming for wanting to be a, a, a participant in what we're doing here, which is just looking into God's Word, exploring it together, learning more from it. And in this special series uh, that we've decided to uh, entitle The Christian Atheist, uh, you know, we kind of did have that hope that people would look at that title and, and say, I'd like to hear that. Uh, what in the world are they going to talk about? Um, we're using the uh, verse from Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, which we've referenced uh, prior to each lesson. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. So we kind of see people who they're going to they're gonna claim to know God and they want to say that they're going to be obedient to God, but their actions don't prove that. And so those are some of the things that we're looking at in this series. Uh, and I'm excited to, to be alongside of uh, some, some good brothers who have brought some excellent lessons. It's always a little bit nerve-wracking following each lesson because you're like, how am I, I going to top that? Uh, I'm not looking to top anything. Uh, just, just so appreciative of the men and their abilities and their willingness, and it's just, it's just great to be a part of that. I want you to be turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be reading, uh, reading a few verses here in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1, if you'll just follow along with me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am, <clears throat> I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I have a question for you all after reading this parable. And I'm not looking for hands or a verbal answer. I just want you to think about this question. The question is, do you think that the landowner in this parable was fair to the workers? And I want you to think about that question from your own perspective, from your own understanding and experience of what fairness is. So I want you to place yourself in the shoes of that worker who has been there all day long, laboring and toiling and working in that hard heat, and you're sweating, 
And, and every once in a while you look up and you see some more workers coming in and you might think, all right, we've got some help coming in. We're, we're going to get through this day and we're going to get the work done. You look up periodically and you see more workers coming in and, and you're just thinking, all right, more workers, this is good. At the end of the day, though, the, uh, the foreman comes up and he says, men, come forward. Your, your work day is done. I'm, I'm ready to pay you. Okay, so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the one who just had been there in an hour. And he's going to line you up over here and you're going to be thinking, he said he's going to pay me what's right, so uh, you know, I'm not expecting a whole lot here. Drops a denarius in your hand, a day's wage. Most of us would, in the world, probably look at that and be like, put it in the pocket and back away. All right, well, thank you. Appreciate that. Now, you're at the other end of the spectrum. And you're down here and you're looking down and you see that denarius dropped in that man's hand. And you're thinking, did you see? Did you see what that guy got paid? He got paid a full day's wage and he's only been here an hour. Now you're going to start thinking, well, if he paid him a full day's wage just for an hour, we're going to get paid. So you're going to you're going to wait for the foreman to come down and you're ready to get your money and you hold your hand out and you're like, and he drops that denarius. And you look at it and you're like, a little bit more, please. But he stops right there. How are you feeling at that very point? I'm sure most of us would be feeling a little disappointed, a little, a little discouraged, a little offset. That's not fair. You didn't get what you thought you earned, what you thought was fair. Now, we're going to revisit that parable shortly and periodically, but with that thought of fairness in mind... How many things have come up in life or in in others' lives that you know which have caused you to wonder about the fairness of life or the fairness of God? Uh, You know, if you're you're someone who's never believed in God, usually that train of thought is is probably just down the road of of Darwinism or it is what it is mentality. Uh, But if you do believe in God, it might still yet cause you to, to question your faith and conviction about how involved God is in things. So we may become among those who believe in God, but don't think He is fair. So we can go down many roads, many scenarios, thinking about whether or not God is fair. You know, sometimes people get together and they go over these hypothetical questions like, well, what about those who are never going to hear the truth? What about those who uh, don't have the same opportunity for a healthy lifestyle uh, or, or safe lifestyle like, like they have in foreign countries? What about those who, who have lost everything undeservingly in our eyes? Uh, what about those who deal with constant persecution? We can go on and on and on. We can go around the room and we each have our hypothetical question. And I am going to do the best to answer this question from a perspective that won't answer all the hypothetical ones. But it will be an answer, I believe, that we can pull from Scripture to show the fairness of God. Now, before we get much further, I also want to think about that word fairness just by itself. What is fairness? What is fairness to you? I would say that most of us would define the term similarly in so many words. However, when you think about it, the, the value or, or worth in something being fair is, is kind of individually determined, uh, which subsequently becomes the issue. Let's face it, everyone can determine what is fair to themselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same in someone else's mind. If you look this up, uh, in a dictionary, you're going to see something like this. In accordance with the rules or standards, legitimate, uh, impartial and just treatment or behavior, 
without favoritism or discrimination. So from the human perspective, though, the parable of the workers just seems unfair. But the parable of the workers isn't meant for us to understand from from how we perceive things, but rather how God operates. So I hope you'll spend some time with me in in some scripture and some thoughts uh, to these things. And in this lesson, I hope to bring out three considerations of fairness. And the first of these is this question. Are God's rules and expectations fair? I want you to be turning over, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. There are expectations everywhere around us and in our lives. And this applies physically, uh, such as in school or in our jobs. But there's also expectations spiritually and as it applies to each other as well as God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, I want you to notice what Paul writes here. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know what the word workmanship means? If you have the ISV translation, or maybe other translations have this as well, you're going to see the word masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. Don't think about a, a you know Webster def- definition here. I just want you to take that word and define it with itself, because that's what we can do. What, is a ma- what, what does it take to make a masterpiece? Well, it takes a master, and it takes a piece, an object. So we are his creation. We are that piece, if you will. And we are created for good works. Now those good works must bear good fruits. So we're going to learn a little bit about that fruit bearing that we're expected to do. I want you to be turning over to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be reading uh, through verses 15 through 19 here. And I really want you to pay attention to those, to those last three verses as we read these. Matthew 7, 15 through 19. Get these on the board up there so you all can see them. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I ask you to take special note of those those last three verses and think about what they're saying. Every good tree produces what kind of fruit? hope the kids could even answer this one. Good. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So we must be producing good fruit by these good works. And Scripture talks a little bit more uh, about this fruit bearing. I'm going to actually have you be turning to Colossians chapter 3. And be ready there, Colossians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'm going to be reading Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 22 in the first part of 23a, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if you're ready in Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 12 through 15 there. Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. These, these attributes or these attitudes, these actions, are those of a tree bearing good fruit. Do these fruits seem unachievable, unobtainable? Do they seem unfair to you? I don't know anyone that would look at these and say, well, those are just horrible, aren't they? I mean, I can't believe God would, would want me to be, uh, what is that, uh, kind? I have to be kind? And what's, this, what's this other word for forgiving? I have to be, I have to be forgiving? I don't know anybody that's going to look at those passages and have that kind of attitude toward it. I, I haven't met them if they're there, but we think about those fruits. And these are the kinds of fruits that we are expected to bear in obedience to Him. And we know we can meet these expectations because of the love of God. That's a reference to 1 John 5, 3, where it says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. That means they're achievable. I can meet these expectations. So we should desire to keep those commandments and expectations because we are His. Remember that from the previous reading? We are His. We are His creation, and not only that, but we were bought, according to 1 Corinthians 6.20. We were bought. Now, someone might say, look, if, if we were His, why did we have to be bought? That doesn't make much sense. Well, it's because something has taken us away. There's been a separation somehow, and that separation is called sin. Sin came between us and God, and without payment, if you will, we would have been lost forever. Some still might say, whoa, 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 Luke, are you telling me that I'm owned? Am I, am I owned like, like a slave would be owned? Are you telling me that God created us first off to, to serve Him? And now you're saying that I was bought from something like a slave would be? That, how is that fair? Where's, where's my say? Don't be misunderstanding Scripture. And don't be shorthanding God's word. You ought to know the price that was paid for you, and, and we are going to talk about that a little bit uh, later in this lesson. But you see, some get that mindset that God owes them something special in life, something special in health or in blessings, etc. We would do well to remember that God is indebted to no man. It is only by His grace, His love, and His mercy that He's even allowed us to, to be here, to see another day. If we live in that recognition and we accept that truth, we ought then to live and let our light shine for him, Matthew 5.16, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The expectation of being created to serve God is also that we make the choice to serve God. Our good brother Josh Harris referenced in his lesson in the book of Joshua where it said, Choose this day who you will serve. That's Joshua 24, 15. Choose. Here's your answer to your slavery question. Does a slave get a choice, really? No, they don't. But we do. We are created to serve, yes. We are bought with a price, yes. But even after all of that, God gave us choice. We choose what we do and who we serve. Think about how fair that is 
in that human concept. Now, in order to make a choice, though, there must be a circumstance that causes us to have to choose whether that be good or whether that be bad. And those challenges, if you will, and this is what uh, Mitchell alluded to, they come through temptations, tribulations, and tests. Which brings me to our next consideration. Is it fair that God allows us to be tested? Fair question. As far back as we can go in Scripture, we can see time and time again when God's people were put to the test. You know, Adam and Eve, they would have been put to the test uh, as they were facing that decision of eating of the, of the, forbidden, uh, the forbidden fruit. You know, Noah would have been tested in building of the ark. Abraham was tested in uh, having to accept to sacrifice his son. Moses, Joshua, the list goes on. Test and test and test. All of these people of God went through hard trials and tribulations. Each story that we have, you know, we can pull out many aspects of it, and I can pick any one of them to show uh, the test that we endure. But I want to invite you to one particular uh, Old Testament character, and I bet you're going to know what we're going to here because it's well known, and that is the book of Job. What man endured much more than this? I don't know, but many men endured many things. This book of Job is going to point us to some interesting things. We can recap this because we're not going to read the entirety of Job. Uh, but just looking in the first chapter here, we can see right away some pretty awesome things about Job. It says, There's a man in the land of Uz, verse 1, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He had multiple sons and daughters. He had multiple uh, uh, possessions, 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. Uh, just on and on and on about the wealth and the righteousness of Job here. We can see a lot of that. He was sought out for counsel by both young and old. We can read that later in the book of Job. He helped many people. He was very generous. So by this point, most of us will be likely thinking that Job is, is getting exactly what he deserves because he is a he's a servant, and that's... That's fair. He should get all these things, right? Let's continue our summary. In chapter 2, get these on the board as well. In chapter 2, uh, this, is, this is shortly after a challenge that was presented by the devil uh, to God, where the devil says, have you not put hedges around Job and protected him? This is why he serves you. Lay your hand on this stuff, take that stuff away, and I bet he'll curse you to your face. Satan takes away from Job in, in chapter 1 his children. Right off the bat, his children are taken away from Job. I want you to think about that emotional impact. But now Satan's coming back saying, hey, touch Job now. Touch him and I bet I bet he'll curse you. Look at verses uh, 4 through 6 of chapter 2. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. Another challenge by the devil here. And from this point on, over the next several chapters, Job is confronted by his wife, by his friends, by his own emotions, and trying to understand what's going on here. And he eventually hits a point where because of his lack of understanding, he begins down that road of basically not feeling treated fairly. And in Job 30, way down the line, and pretty much the last half of that chapter in Job, is kind of pleading his case, if you will, as to why he thinks you know, he shouldn't have to go through what he's going through. Think about this. 
And this can be seen in, in many other passages, but we can see there in his words, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. Lord, where are you at? You have cast me away, Lord. After all, after all I've done in, in good and service and generosity and giving and, and being of wisdom for those who need it. I want you to take note of that self-justification. Because Job's going to get taught a lesson that ought to be learned by us as well. But first, I want you to stop and, and take Job out of the focus. Insert your own experiences in life. Has anything ever happened that caused you to feel that way? That caused you, maybe, that was, that was so hard on yourself that you cried out and you felt like there's no answer. There's, why, why am I not comforted yet? What have I done wrong? I, I've done all this stuff, God. Why, why is this going on? How is this fair? How is this fair? How many of us, or how many do we know, turn their backs on trusting in God when we go, when the, when the going gets tough? I would say many, too many. So what lesson can we learn through Job's experience as we look back at this book? For one, Job allowed the persuasion, you know, whether that was self-inflicted or by others causing him to lose focus. Constant trial caused him to begin to wonder why he deserved this punishment for a crime he did not commit. And Job was rebuked, and he had to be taught a lesson later on that showed him we are not worthy to justify ourselves against the Lord, for God is mighty and all-powerful. I want you to be looking at Job chapter 30. Uh, 38. Job chapter 38. Let's look at a a few things that God says here to Job. Just just fathom that. This is is direct conversation. The Lord answered Job. Chapter 38, verses 4 through 7 first. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Go back down to uh, 12 through 15 here. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of of the skirts of earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Go on down to verses 34 and 38, or through 38. 34 through 38. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning, that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heaven when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? God is drilling Job with some things here. And much more than that, He's drilling us as well. When we look back at this and reflect on it, He's saying, know who I am. Know who I am. Josh Harris's first sermon, Know the Lord. Know who I am. And don't forget it. Don't forget it. Later in chapter 42, Job changes his heart because of his weakness. Job says in verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
The phrase right there should be one that we all need to acknowledge. For the Lord's thoughts are, and I guarantee everyone in here can finish it, the Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and His ways are higher than our ways. Now, would we look at Job from a human standpoint and say the Lord was fair to him through this? Many would say no. But the story of Job did so much for us today, and it did so much for Job as well. Job's reward, by the way, for his repentance and and going through this tribulation was double that of what he ever had. But the question I think now might be, is how does the test of Job relate to the test we endure? Obviously, we can see that there is reward in obedience and in repentance and for endurance and for faith, but why go through the trials and the test? I want you to... be turning here in just a moment. Actually, I want you to be turning now to James chapter 1. As you're turning to James chapter 1, I'm going to read this Second Timothy 3.12 passage that says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hopefully you're close to James chapter 1 now. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I'll be turning over a few more pages to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 here. 1 Peter 1, 6-9 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Do you know what we can gather from these passages? Exactly what they say. The fact that we will face trials and tribulations and tests. The fact also that it will test our faith, but that the testing of that faith is meant to produce spiritual growth and spirit and receive reward. Now, some may still say, I just don't think it's right for God to do that. But I think we also fail to compare the fact that we test ourselves daily. We push our limits in study, in work, in sports. Why? Why do we do that? Why would we push those limits? Why would we test ourselves? Well, it's because we want to grow. We want to achieve. And that is part of the work of producing those attributes of someone who will be successful in those goals. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to be successful in our spiritual, th- uh, in pursuit of spiritual things. And that is why we must endure the test that we are faced with. And beyond that, God promises that these tests will not be more than we can bear. Mitch alluded to this. It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
You know, God's design is perfect. His ways are perfect. It is our logic that is skewed. It is our reasoning that falls short. And we should never question God. But we should endure against the devil. The last consideration or question I have for you this morning is this. Has God been fair to you? Has God been fair to you? And I hope this last point comes across very glaring and transparent. This actually shouldn't really be a question we have to consider at all. You know, John F. Kennedy, he's, he's well known for his uh, inaugural speech, <clears throat> his inaugural address, where he used the phrase, ask not what your country can do for you as what you can do for your country. Most of us know that quote. And that phrase, it was meant to challenge every American to, to contribute in some way to the public good. But with that in mind, I ask, what can God do to be fair to you? But really, I want you to consider, in our human understanding and logic, have we really been fair to him? Is it fair that God created a perfect world only to have man pollute it with sin? Is it fair that to God that that He has had to endure thousands of years of rejection and sin when we were created instead to serve Him and to be obedient to Him? Is it fair to God that He had to send His only begotten Son, John 3.16, His perfect Son, His sinless Son, 1 Peter 2.22, because we could not save ourselves, Romans 5, 6. Is it fair that God had to send Jesus and have him walk on this earth in the human flesh when he was in bliss? But he had to experience everything we experienced in pain and emotion and worse, in torture and punishment for wrong that he didn't commit. Is it fair that his hands and nails were driven or had nails driven into them? That his feet, they endured the same according to Mark 15 and 24. That he was suspended on a cross and pierced and bled and died for us. Is it fair that so many times God gets the blame for what goes wrong on this earth to us or to others? Is it fair that he offers us mercy time and time again and forgiveness time and time again and we reject it time and time again? By now, by now, I hope you're, you're rethinking just how fair God is. Most in this room would have agreed that God is fair before I even started this lesson. But there's many out there who don't think God is fair. And I would go further to say this, not just how fair God is, but how just God is. God is just and God is right. And all that He puts on this earth for us to endure is right. And the faith that we produce in steadfastness is right as we serve Him. The parable of the workers sheds light on God's generosity. The landowner gave what was right. What was His to give. And He gave it equally based on the request for work to be done. Regardless how long that work day was, And I want you to think that that that, that means that we can all be partakers in the reward of heaven when we live for Him and are obedient to His Word. We can receive the reward of God has promised, and we should rejoice that we will receive that reward alongside of our faithful brothers and sisters. And we should rejoice that we will have the chance to share eternity together, praising our Lord and Savior for His everlasting love. Amen.
We truly serve a fair and just God. And I hope this lesson has at least brought some some sort of thought or point that can help guide us and maybe change our minds when we start to perceive things like Job did. I hope that when we walk away from here and we do endure and face trials and tribulations that we remember, this is a test to strengthen me. This is something that's going to help me. And so, if you are here, brother or sister, and you have given your life to Christ, but you've allowed the things of this world to influence you otherwise and to cause your thinking to be weak against God, then we want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. If you haven't given your life to God at all yet, then I hope you're seeing what kind of God we serve. A loving God, one who offers salvation, a fair and just God, an amazing God that we serve. If you need anything, I hope that you'll consider these thoughts as the men prior have brought to you, that this lesson has brought to you, and each and every time that we study His Word, what is brought forth. If you need anything at all, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.